Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. morning um we we started off with singing some amazing songs guys um in jesus name we just repeated over and over and over again we want to point you to jesus today we we also sang living in the overflow i hope that is true for you this morning uh, that you're actually living in abundance, the abundant life. That's what you're created for, that you're actually living in the overflow. And, and so, uh, guys, I, I, I pray that that is true for you this morning, wherever you are, that that is the life that you have in Christ Jesus. We are a marked people. We are a baptized people who've been baptized as the people of God into identity in Christ, into destiny in Christ and through that, we are to influence our city and the world. And, uh, and so we're, we're going we're gonna to do that together. Even though we're separate, we're, we're going to do that together all around our city. And this series called Discover and Rise is geared towards that purpose. It's, it's geared towards us discovering discipleship. It's geared towards us discovering our foundation, our identity in Christ, our destiny in Christ, and for us moving forward together as the church. Guys, the church needs to be the church. We talked about fathers earlier and, and how we heard our fathers saying certain things, but I also said, and Missy pointed this out as well, that our fathers modeled a bunch of things. And guys, so, so this isn't just about us talking. This is about us being. As Charmaine's dad says, talk is cheap, right? So let's also talk. We still need to do that. We still need to have dialogue and conversation, but let's, let's turn that conversation, that dialogue into meaningful action to be the church because it's by our good deeds that Jesus says, that Peter says, that people will know and glorify God. They will see that in us. God created us for good works in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We're to be on display for the world to see. Just like the art here on this wall, we're to be on display for the world to see. So this is a, this is a teaching series. So throughout the summer... There'll be a lot of teaching. It's not necessarily a preaching series, although I got a little preachy there. Uh, I'm just excited about this. Uh, and today, uh, we're, so through, sorry, throughout the summer, we're going to go through our DNA. And our DNA as a church is K-D-S-C. It's Kingdom Disciple Society Church. It's, in a sentence, it's Kingdom Disciples Engaging Society. And out of that arises the church. Okay, so we start with the kingdom. So we're going to do kingdom for a couple of weeks here. And this week, we're on core theology. So it's kingdom, kind of colon, core theology. Next week, we'll do kingdom, rhythms, and, and then we'll go into disciple, which is, you know, hear, trust, obey, and, and we'll, go on, we'll go on from there. So this week, though, kingdom, core theology. So I want to give you guys... Core theology. And then what I mean by core theology is those doctrines, those beliefs that every follower of Jesus, that every Christian believes. Okay? Now there's there's a whole bunch of different beliefs in Christianity. There's a big spectrum. Uh, just take spiritual gifts, for instance. There's, there's a spectrum of what people believe about spiritual gifts. Some people believe in, in that all the spiritual gifts are, are here and they're accessible and we can operate in them today. Some people believe that some have ceased. Uh, and then there's, there's a whole in-between. So we're not talking about those necessarily. We're talking about what's core that all, that all Christians will believe uh, and, and that we can unite around. So... We're going to do a little bit of theological triage today. This is a, this is a theological concept that is based off of a, a triage unit that says what is most important, what is first order, and what is second and third order. So, for instance, in a triage unit in an emergency room, um, <clears throat> like, like something that Ar Arjun works in, right, um, in an emergency room, uh, they do triage. They, they say, okay, if someone comes in bleeding from the neck, he's more important than, than the person who is, uh, has a scraped knee, right? And if we treated 
everybody the same, well then it would just be first come first serve and this, this person over here who's bleeding from the neck might, might just bleed out and die. So what you do is you say, well that's more important than this, so you address it first. Same thing with theology. What is most important? What is the core there that, that makes us Christian? And then what is second and third order? The, one of the issues with, with theology and with beliefs and doctrines is what, what people do is they, uh, when you get it mixed up and messed up, what they'll do is they'll take second order doctrines or third order, or if you want to add a fourth order doctrine, and they'll elevate it to a first order or core doctrine. And that, that creates division, that creates disunity, and it, and it becomes very divisive. And when you do that in a local body of believers, I mean, you can ruin a church over that. You can ruin a body of believers over that, over elevating a second or third uh, order doctrine to first order. So I'm going to give us today what those first order doctrines are. There's six of them and five or six. I think they, I can't remember. You'll see them on your screen. Um, and, and I'm going to give them and we're going to go through this passage and I'm going to give you what those doctrines are today, which means that if I didn't mention that doctrine, then it's second or it's third. And when you think of a second order doctrine, those are those second order doctrines are the ones that kind of tend to separate us into denominations. If you're if you're a Christian uh, on this on this feed today, that's why that, that's what separates in, us into denominations. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're watching this today, uh, it is that's why there's so many different denominations because there's a spectrum of interpretations and beliefs on second order doctrines. For instance, baptism would be in there. Do we baptize by immersion? Do we baptize believers? Do we baptize babies? Do we baptize by sprinkling? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, just take Baptists who baptize with believers' baptism, full immersion, and Presbyterians who, who do sprinkling uh, with babies uh, or with children and, and babies. So um, also called pedo-baptism for you theologians out there. So those are two different, and those, that's been one thing that's divided Baptists and Presbyterians. But I don't mean division in the, in, the, um, uh, in, the, in the rough sense, necessarily, although it may have started that way, but pro probably the, our closest church partner in the city is a Presbyterian church that, that meets on, on the east end of downtown as well. So um, we, we observe believers' baptism, and, and, and they do as well, uh, but we don't baptize children. We do child dedication, right? But it may, we may not worship together on Sunday, but we're, we don't think that separates us from being fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So that's an example of a second-order doctrine. A third-order doctrine example would be eschatology, study of the last things, of the end times, and what you believe about that. Is it pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, mid-trib, uh, you know, all these things. If you don't know any of those words, don't worry. You don't need to. They're all just theories, and most of it is speculative theology. So um, there's some things that we know about the end times, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, but the, the rest of it, guys, it's like a third-order doctrine. It shouldn't separate us. Now, I've been a part of an organization where they, where they took that third-order doctrine and they put it as first order, eschatology. And they said, well, you have to believe that Jesus has come back, you know, whatever it was, pre-trib, there's, there's a rapture here, there's this, this, and, it, and it's ordered this way, or you can't be a part of this. And that's, that's kind of ridiculous. We shouldn't divide over those things. There's a spectrum. Now, the beautiful thing about Trinity Life Church, guys, is that uh, we have a spectrum. Because we emphasize core theology, we have a spectrum of believers in our church, of people who believe different things. Even though we're a church that wants to operate in spiritual gifts, in our church, we have people who would consider themselves cessationists, and we have people who would consider, consider all 20 spiritual gifts in operation and, and accessible today. Um, and we're able to operate in the same local body of believers that doesn't have to separate us, like it would maybe a Baptist and a Pentecostal. In our church, we're not emphasizing denomination. We're emphasizing uh, community and these core beliefs that we're about to go through today, and mission, uh, which, so anyways, uh, my, my point is it doesn't have to separate. We can operate together, and, and it can be something beautiful, because I don't think the church, the early church, agreed on everything. 
which is why we have the books of the Bible. You see Paul dealing with all this stuff because they don't agree on everything. And, and so that's the church, guys. It's a family. It's the family of God. It's the household of God. And in our families, in our immediate families even, you don't agree on everything. But you're able to work through things, able to exist together, able to love one another, forgive one another, carry one another's burdens, wash one another's feet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to be a family of God. And so that's what we want for the church. One of my mentors, Bob Roberts, he says this about core theology. He says when his core theology was this big, his love for others was like this. But when his core theology went from this to this, and he held tightly to these things right here, his love for others became like this. So when you put more things into that core that don't belong there, you have the tendency, guys, to cut people off, to be divisive, to sow seeds of discord and disunity. What we want to do is have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, consider others. Have the same spirit, have the same mind. Humble ourselves. Die to ourselves, right? So that's what, that's what we want this morning. So let's go into core theology. Because the more excellent way is love. So let's make our core theology tight, guys. Let's hold on to these tight things. Because any follower of Jesus is going to believe those things. And, and let's go into the first one. So this is coming out of verse 1 in, in Acts here. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So the first book to Acts is the book of Luke. And uh, so he's, he's writing this to this person. Um, it also means lover of God is what Theophilus, Theophilus means. So some people think this isn't actually a person he's writing to, but, but this is just those who love God. So in the first book, O lovers of God or O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach the gospel of Luke. So let's just stop there because we're talking about scripture here. So he's, he's pointing back to the gospel of Luke, to scripture, and now he's writing more scripture in, in the book of Acts, which is like um, the early history of the church, right? So let's, let's talk about scripture first. There's, this is core theology. This is our first core doctrine, is, is scripture and what we believe about scripture. And there's five scriptural beliefs that underlie and undergird and bolster and support and frame our understanding of scripture. And the first one is this, it's, it's called revelation. And guys, there's so much I can say on each one of these, and I don't have the time to go into all of these so deeply, but that's what the Q&A is for, that's what I'm here for at, at our church. If you ever have any questions about these things, please just come talk to me about these things. You can talk to our leaders about these things. Um, uh, so I'm going to touch all these things as we go through this very briefly, and uh, and uh, because I like guys, there's whole books written on revelation as a belief about what what we believe about revelation in scripture. There's whole books, like thick books, like dense books. So we're not going to be able to deal with all that here. Um, so let's let's just I'm going to give you a, basically a statement of what revelation is. So again, Revelation, I'm talking about God revealing. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation that's in the Bible, the last book of the Bible. Revelation, what we believe about how God reveals. That's what we're talking about here. And then God reveals himself through his word. So we believe that the scripture, this book right here, the Bible, is God's revelation. It's God revealing himself through, through this word, right? Through spoken word, through written word. God is revealing himself. That's all I'm going to say about Revelation. Again, there's books and books written on this doctrine. And, and you can go check those out if, if you want. But basically all we need to know is, is this God's revelation? Did he speak through this? Well, yeah, we believe scripture is that. that that's what this doctrine means. Inspiration is the next one. Uh, there's, there's, there's a verse that says the, in, in 2, 2 Timothy, in my, or 1 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, I think it's First Timothy, um, that, that scripture is God-breathed, right? This is, this is what inspiration is getting at, that the writing and the composing of the scriptures were directed and guided by the Holy Spirit, that he inspired them. Now, how did he do that? We're not exactly sure, 
Right. A lot, a lot of people think, well, was it an, an ecstatic utterance? Almost like, like, did the spirit take over Luke and he just like his eyes went back in the head and he just started writing? Well, um, probably not, because we see Luke. Luke writes his gospel differently from Matthew, Mark and John, because there is uh, there's research that's involved. Actually, he goes and asks people, th- asks people things and he goes in and gathers information. Luke was a physician, so he's he's. He's almost very, um, meth- he's very methodical and almost scientific in, his, in the way he approaches this and, and puts, puts his gospel together and puts the book of Acts together. So his personality is in there. So the Spirit doesn't take over. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The Spirit just uses Luke as a vessel, and he inspires and he guides him to, to write this. So inspiration is that. Uh, the third one is called perspicuity. Now, that's a, that's a big word, theological word, uh, that nobody ever <laughs> uses. Uh, it basically just means clarity. The clarity of the scriptures, the scriptures have, that have, the scriptures have clarity. Uh, and, and that means that the scriptures are given to us clearly and that any follower of Jesus, any believer, any Christian, can read the scriptures and understand them. Any Christian can do that. So when people ask me, well, how do you read the Bible? Which is actually something we're going to talk about later on in this series. Um, I said, well, just, just start by reading it. And, and just, tr- just start there. Uh, I learned how to read the Bible by reading it over and 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 over again. And I'm reading it now. Uh, over the past few weeks, I started reading it uh, all the way through again. So maybe two, three weeks ago, I started reading it through, and I'm uh, on First Samuel now. And so, uh, guys, just read it. Just, just take time to sit down and, and read it. Uh, the scriptures are clear. They're perspicuous. Uh, if you can remember that word, if you could say perspicuous with me. Perspicuous. Uh, perspicuity is a, a doctrine of the scriptures that upholds them. So uh, that's number three. Number four, sufficiency. The sufficiency of the scriptures. And that means that the scriptures right here give us what we need to know to understand God's purposes and experience salvation and the abundant life. They give us everything we need to know for that to experience the abundant life and salvation. Now, do they give us everything we need to know? Well, no, they, they don't do all that. Um, they don't give us everything, right? But do they give us everything we need to know about God and who he is and how we access Jesus and how uh, we access the abundant life? Yeah, they do. They're sufficient for that. We don't need to go outside the scriptures to say, how must a person be saved? We don't need to do that. It, this is what this is for. We don't need to go outside the scriptures and say, God, show me who you are. No, nope. we just have to go here. And, and you say, well, what about the spirit? Because I feel like God's revealed some things to me about who he is through a dream or through somebody else or through the spirit or through art or through nature. Well, yes, but it always goes back to this. If, if, you, if, if you feel like God has revealed something to you through any of those other means, through a circumstance or any of those other means, and it doesn't align with this word here, well, then it's not of God. The scriptures are sufficient for that. And then oftentimes when, when God reveals to us something about himself through another means, then we actually see it in the scriptures and it, and it comes full circle and becomes whole, an, uh, a holistic understanding of who God really is. And we experience the fullness of that. So uh, sufficiency. And then the, the fifth one is authority. Authority. The scriptures are authoritative. For the follower of Jesus. Now, we can't appeal to scriptural authority for those who aren't followers of Jesus because they haven't submitted themselves to this authority. Because the scriptures have, now, but, but at the same time, the scriptures have an intrinsic authority and an extrinsic authority. Intrinsic authority is, is, is basically that, so here the scriptures we've said from revelation, from inspiration, that they have a divine origin. So intrinsically, in their origin, intrinsically, they are authoritative. Whether someone wants to believe it or not, they're authoritative for life, for following Jesus, the scriptures are. 
but they also have an extrinsic authority. Now, for me, I've submitted myself to the authority of the Word of God. So I've given them authority in my life. So that's where I say we can't go to the non-believer, even though there's an intrinsic authority, and we can say, well, well, yeah, this is the Word of God. Um, But we can't say, well, then you have to live your life this way, and I'm going to judge you by this. Well, no, they haven't chosen to follow Jesus. They're still living in their sin. They're still living in darkness. They're still blinded. We are supposed to point them to Jesus, not point them to judgment. Right? Jesus says, we're already condemned. He came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. We're already condemned. We don't need to do that for other people. We just need to point them to the beauty of the word. In order to do that, we need to know the word, which we'll talk about uh, a little later as well. But So scripture here. And then the, the, I want to mention one more thing is the doctrine of illumination. This isn't one of the five. This is a, a, another one. That, but it does, and it doesn't necessarily apply to scripture, okay? But it's it's what I wrote my dissertation on. Uh, you can actually get it get it. Um, it's it's published in a book called Illumination and Interpretation, and and so you have here two parts: illumination and interpretation. The scriptures, remember, they're perspicuous; they're clear. We can already understand them. So if you go to the scriptures and you can't, and and you might be saying this, well, they're not clear to me then something isn't wrong with the scriptures. Something is wrong with your heart or your mind. That's where the doctrine of illumination comes in. Because illumination isn't about the spirit illuminating the scriptures. He's already done that. right? He inspired it. It's already clear. Illumination is about the spirit and God enlightening our hearts and our minds. So, so every time I approach the scriptures, guys, I always try to say, Spirit, illuminate my heart and my mind. If there's any sin here, I want to confess it, right? Sin obscures. So if there's hardness in my heart, I want to confess that before I approach the scriptures because I won't understand it correctly. That's where we get all these heresies and aberrant, uh, aberrant um, interpretations as we approach it with the hardness of our heart or, or sin or, or something. Uh, and, and even there may be sins I don't know right, um, that, that, that are against me. And, and so I'll pray those out too. And I, and ask, I ask the Spirit to, to fill me and for uh, me, my mentality, to be the mentality of Christ, to have the mind of Christ, First Corinthians 2. Because First Corinthians 2 says, those who are in the Spirit, those who are of the Spirit, they interpret the things of the Spirit. If you're not of the Spirit, you can't do that. So um, that's the doctrine of, of illumination. All right. So first core doctrine, scripture, what we believe about scripture. Second core doctrine is Jesus. And, and I'm going to talk about four, four things here with Jesus. Again, guys, there's books and books and books written about Jesus. We're just going to talk about uh, a couple things here. Uh, four things, his deity, his humanity, the cross, and the resurrection. Okay? Um, there's four Christological passages in the New Testament. Christological meaning, think, think theological, right? Study of God. Christological, study of Christ. Uh, so there's four Christological passages in the New Testament that are really key for us. There's John 1. This is the Word made flesh. There's Philippians 2. This is the Christ hymn where, where Christ humbled himself uh, to the point of death on a cross. Uh, so that's Philippians 2. There's Colossians 1, that Christ is supreme over all things. And there's Hebrews 1, that, that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, right? He's the, he's the exact nature of, of God. So those are the four chief now, there's other passages, right? But those are the four chief Christological passages. So the deity of Christ, let's, let's go to Hebrews, Hebrews 1 for that. Um, and, and guys, this is in, in the book of Acts here, it's, this is dealing with Acts 2 and 3. Uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, because it says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he presented himself, Jesus, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about... The kingdom of God. So this is this is Jesus here. He the cross, resurrection, his his deity and his, and his humanity on full display here. So in Hebrews one, it says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's His deity. He's fully God. So Jesus is fully God. That's what we believe about Jesus. He's fully God. We also believe He's fully human. 
He's fully God and he's fully human. For those of you who want a little deeper there, if you're thinking, well, does he have one nature? Does he have two natures? Well, both. (laughs) He has two. He's fully God and he's fully human, but that's in one person. So it's almost like two natures in one nature. It's called the hypostatic union. And and it's something we don't fully understand and can fully comprehend, right? So fully God, fully, fully human. And and uh, and this is John one. This is the word became flesh and did what? You guys know this. And dwelt among us and lived with us. Incarnation incarnational in the flesh right he came in the flesh so um that's his humanity he had to become man why that's the cross philippians 2 jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross because deuteronomy says that anyone hanging on a tree is cursed and then jesus is hanging on a tree right he's he's put on a tree and he's cursed he he bears our curse he takes our, uh, he takes the wrath that, that belonged to us, the curse that belonged to us. He takes the punishment, the consequences, all that on the cross for us. And they, that weight of that, that's why the Old Testament is so long and so big, um, because it's showing us how much Jesus takes for us when the gospels come. Because there's so many, there's so many bad things in the Old Testament, right? And it's saying, okay, you have this thread of hope and saying, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. Oh, we're so bad, we're so bad. There's hope, there's hope. We're bad, we're bad. There's, there's hope, there's hope. Remember, the image of God is in you. There's hope, there's hope. Image of God is in you. Be fruitful be mo- uh, and multiply. Oh, there's, there's, there's a Messiah figure coming. There's people who point us to the Messiah. He's coming, he's coming. And then he takes on the fullness of that, the weight of that. And that's why the entire earth gets dark. That's why the earthquake happens. That's why the veil is torn. That's why Jesus cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because he takes the fullness of that weight for us, and that's the cross. And why? So Anselm, in, in the Middle Ages, he wrote this, this, um, this treatise called uh, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Man. Why, why God Man? Why, is God, why did God have to become man? Why is God man also? Um, why, why, yeah, why God, man, basically. And, and, and so that's because on the cross, Jesus needed to be fully God to be perfect and represent perfection, be sinless, and he'd be fully man to take on flesh and kill the flesh, kill the hostility, right? And make, to make peace between us and God. So he had to be fully both because he had to represent God and he had to represent us. And in representing us, he made a way for us to get to God, right? And we didn't have to work for it. Jesus came down here and did it all for us. How amazing is that, guys? That is what we believe about Jesus. And, and that, that one thing alone separates us from any other uh, religion or faith that believes that Jesus even existed uh, or that believes Jesus is a prophet. You, uh, at least you have the Muslim faith that believes Jesus is a prophet, but they, they stop here and say, well, Jesus didn't die on a cross because that would be blasphemous to have a prophet of God killed like that. And so they, they stop there. And then, and then uh, yeah, well, 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 we won't go further deep into that, but Jesus humbled himself. That's Philippians 2. And then the resurrection. That's Colossians 1. That says he is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the resurrection. He, and in the resurrection, what did he do? Well, he conquered sin and he conquered death, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is 1 Corinthians 15. Where is your victory, right? Um, he swallowed it up. How, it's, it's so amazing, guys. I, I get so excited talking about these things. I hope you're, you're getting excited too. Like These are the truths that make us followers of Jesus, that make us Christians, that make us marked people who represent God and the hope of this world and the church. These are just some of them. We've only gone through two, scripture and Jesus, okay? And then number, number four is, I hope you, and I'm assuming you're seeing this on your screen as we go through these. Um, number four is the Trinity. Sorry, number three. I skipped, a, I skipped a number there. Number three is the Trinity. Ah, number three is the Trinity, 
Because there's three. I didn't, I didn't make that up. It just happened. <laughs> um, so the Trinity. And, and just here's a simple statement on the Trinity, guys. The Trinity, one of God's main characteristics is he is incomprehensible. We, we can't fully understand him. We can't. Isaiah says, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, now, we, we got a lot closer with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. You know, we can have the thoughts of the Spirit because we have the mind of Christ. Uh, we can be holy as he is holy. Uh, we can be perfect as he is perfect, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but we're, we're a long ways from, from, uh, from fully understanding who God is, Right? And so just want to say that off the top, all of your Trinity, all of your Trinitarian, uh, what do they call them? Analogies, illustrations, metaphors, whatever, are all going to fall short, right? All analogies break down. Uh, for instance, you have an apple and you'll say, well, God the Father is the core, um, Jesus is the fleshy part of the apple, and the spirit is the skin. Well, uh, yeah, that, that falls apart easily. It, it actually falls into heresy. <laughs> uh, uh, quite quickly, uh, all the, most of these analogies do, and there's a lot of heresies surrounding the Trinity, guys. Um, I could also say I, I am a father, I am a son, and I'm a husband. Well, the problem with that is I'm still one person. And, and the, st- the Trinity statement for us this morning is that, and this is the orthodox statement, guys, that there is one God or one essence and three persons. Now, persons isn't a, the best translation, maybe, but um, that's, what, that's what we have in English. So one God, three persons. One essence. They're all God. They're all fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then three, uh, the Greek word is, is hypostasis. Uh, and, and so there's, there's three persons. There's still all God, but there's three persons. Okay. Um, where my analogy breaks down of father, son, husband is that I'm still one person. And modalism or Sibelianism was a heresy in the early church that said, well, it's one God, but he manifests himself differently at different times. So at this time, he's God the Father, but then he appears as God the Son. Then he appears as God the Holy Spirit. No, that isn't how it is. Because look at Matthew chapter... Three in Christ's baptism, Jesus is getting baptized. God the Father speaks from heaven, says, "This is my Son, in whom I'm in whom I'm well pleased." And the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, or, or like a dove, right? So you have all three three uh, persons of the Trinity represented in one instance. So modalism goes out the window here. Um, also, you hear a lot about tritheism. Well, we worship three gods or three-headed God. And, and that's, that's, an, that's a heresy as well. It's not three gods. It's one God, right? Now, can we understand it? No. Um, guys, I took a whole seminar on this in, uh, when I did my PhD. I took a whole seminar on this. I remember talking to somebody about this when I was in there and they, and, um, who wasn't in the seminar, and, and they said, you're taking a whole semester to talk about the Trinity? What, like, what, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, this is God. We could talk about this for the rest of our lives and still not fully understand, right? So that's the Trinity. I'm not going to say too much more more about that, except that um, our church is called Trinity Life. And there's a reason for that. We didn't just draw names out of a hat, right? We're called Trinity Life because the Trinity has invited us into life with them. That's what you're made for. That's what we're made for. To, that's the abundant life, to be in Trinity life. And Ephesians 3 talks about this. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in he- heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit. Now, verse 17, so that Christ, now the Son, may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you may be filled with all the fullness 
of God. If you're with somebody today who's a follower of Jesus, turn to them and say, you are filled with all the fullness of God. Say that to them. You're filled with all the fullness of God. If you're by yourself, just say that out loud. Declare that truth over yourself. You are filled with all the fullness of God. That is Trinity life. You are invited into that life. Guys, we're not citizens of this world any longer. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen in Trinity life. Right? That is so beautiful. So that's so. Our church name represents that. It's actually why I don't, I hardly ever use the abbreviation TLC because it, it, it takes out that word Trinity Life. So if you hear me talk about Trinity Life, I always say, or I try to always say Trinity Life. Um, now, we're lazy, right? So, of course, most people use TLC, but I like that, I like that word reminder that, no, I am part of Trinity Life. And in our church is a small part of what that looks like in real life for us. It's the abundant life. So Trinity life, it's, it's, why, we, it's why we did that. Okay, um, let's go to the fourth one, kingdom of God. Okay, this is a big one. We're not going to dive deeply into this because we talk about the kingdom a lot. Um, but let's start with the, the importance of the kingdom of God first. This is Matthew 6.33. This is Jesus saying, seek first, what? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Say that out loud. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not seek first the church. Not seek first prayer. Not seek first now, these things all are under the kingdom of God, but, but, but when we, remember, we don't want to elevate something above and put the kingdom of God below, right? Um, and we don't want to reduce the kingdom of God to, to, to something that it isn't. So let's seek first the kingdom, then all these other things will be, will be added uh, under, underneath, right? Under that umbrella. So that's Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.10, Jesus gives us the model prayer, right? He's teaching his, his disciples to pray, and he says, your kingdom come. Right? Not the church come, but your kingdom come. Your, and, and, and this is like a qualifying statement. This means what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That in its essence is the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, what is that? Well, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so let's, let's talk about this for a second. What, well, what is the kingdom of God then? Well, what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is, is that. It's God's will being done on earth as, as it is in heaven. It's God's rule and reign and wherever that is happening. Um, you know, so, so we bring the kingdom of God with us, right? Luke 17, 21 says, the, the kingdom of God is within you. Tolstoy wrote a book on this too as he's, as he's figuring out his, his faith. Uh, he, the, this is the, Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace. Um, he says, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. And, and Luke says this. He gets this from Luke. It's, or, or it's sometimes translated as the kingdom of God is, is in the midst of you or it's within your grasp. Like it's right here is what he's saying. And for us who have the spirit of God dwelling in us, well, yeah, the kingdom of God is in us. The rule and reign of, of God is in us. When, when Colossians, uh, when Paul writes this in Colossians, he says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. That's the kingdom of God ruling in our hearts. Guys, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are, you are, you're made to be a mother and a father of nations. You're made to be a king. You are a son of God. Right? Like, like you have, you've been made for that, for that purpose. And, and so uh, we are children of God. There's sons and there's daughters and, uh, and, and there's, and, and yeah, we were just all, we were made to be there. That's the, the beauty of this. So um, Isaiah also talks about this. This isn't just a New Testament concept, guys. You can trace this all through the Old Testament into the New Testament. The, the new, and you can't fully understand the New Testament's understanding of the kingdom of God. Uh, without understanding the Old Testament's understanding of the kingdom of God, because it's all a thread that runs through. And I remember growing up, uh, when we started going to church, um, asking people what the kingdom of God was, and no one could give me an, uh, uh, a definition of that. No one really helped me with that. And, and I, I never really knew what the kingdom of God was. But when I discovered the kingdom, and that's our DNA, right? Kingdom first, disciple, society, church, right? Kingdom first, that's our DNA, K. Okay. So 
So when I discovered the kingdom, it changed everything. It framed everything. It framed all my beliefs for me. So um, here, we, here we have the kingdom of God. And you see, you see in, in this passage here that, that it says, so when they come together, they asked him in verse 6, Acts verse 6, 1 verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't understand it, guys. They'd lived with, lived with him, with Jesus for three and a half years. They still didn't understand that the kingdom wasn't necessarily physical. Although there are physical manifestations of it, but there's this immensely spiritual, magnificent emphasis to it. And he says to them, it's not for you know the times and the seasons, but uh, that the father is fixed by his own authority. So, Isaiah talks about the kingdom. It talks about the nations going up. It talks about the king sitting on the throne. It talks about the nations being a light, all these things. You have Luke. You have Romans 14 that talks about the kingdom of God is not a matter of rules and regulations, but it's not a matter of do's and don'ts. It's, it's, it's actually righteousness. It's peace. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. And those things are intangible until they become tangible, right? Because we live them out. So that's the kingdom of God. We usher in the kingdom of God. And there's this already but not yet tension with the kingdom of God where, yes, Jesus says, hey, I'm here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's within you. It's within your grasp, right? But we're also ushering it in. We're, we're being fruitful and we're multiplying. We're creating cultures, the cultural mandate. We're, we're trying to usher in the kingdom of God. And, and so what does that look like for us? Well, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the Kingdom Manifesto, as Dallas Willard says. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's love your enemies. It's be people of integrity. It's, it's put away anger. It's put away lust. It's, it's turn the other cheek. It's, it's hear and obey the words of Jesus. Those who hear it and obey it, they're like those who built their house on the rock, not on the sand, right? That's the kingdom of God. That's, that's what a kingdom citizen looks like. And you see in the book of Acts, it begins with Jesus teaching the disciples. Right before he leaves, he teaches them. He can teach them anything. But he teaches them about the kingdom of God in verse 3 or 4, wherever it is. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. Verse, verse 4, 3, 3. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, he does this. He doesn't do prayer. He doesn't do all, although those things fall underneath, but, but Luke says it's about the kingdom. Now, all those things probably fall underneath, right? The church, all those things, but, but he says the kingdom. And, and then the book of Acts ends with Paul, the very last verse. Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God in Rome. So the bookends of the book of Acts aren't the church, guys. It's not the church. We often look at the book of Acts as, as a book on the church, but the bookends aren't the church, this book isn't about the church as much as it's about the kingdom and the church being an agent of the kingdom of God. Oh, guys, that should reframe how you look at not just the book of Acts, but the entire scriptures and how you look at your citizenship in the kingdom of God. There's so much I can say on that. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Um, the, the last two, which will go a little quicker, in verse 8 is the mission of God. Now, guys, if you... If you uh, core theology, this is what I'm putting into core theology, and I've used, I've used my own nomenclature for this. Uh, the, some people, if you look this up, if you were to Google this online, some people would have different things here. Um, like the mission of God, some people would say, well, salvation is a core theological issue. This is where I would put salvation. I don't want to reduce the mission of God to just salvation. Those of you who grew up in the church, you're like, Ugh, just salvation, that's everything. Uh... It's, it's not everything. It's a part of the everything, right? Uh, remember, we have a bigger umbrella here. So here, the mission of God is to reveal himself to the world. This is, this is, this is Acts 1.8. This is, uh, but you will receive what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and to the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. So you're to declare to the world who I am. You're to be a living sacrifice, a living revelation, pointing people to the scriptures, operating the power of the spirit to, uh, to, to show people who Jesus is. That's the, that's the gallery, right? That's, that's us as masterpieces to the world. That's the mission of God. It's a love of God. 
It's God making his love known to the rest of the world. Now, we know not everybody comes to knowledge of the truth, but that's God's will. That's his desire. But not everybody comes to faith. Does that stop us from loving other people? Well, no, it shouldn't. That's what I mean. Love is the ethic here, not conversion, right? Not getting people saved. Although you could say, well, that's, that's how we love people. Yes. But when we make love our, our telos, our goal, our end, our purpose, not converting people, that's a much healthier way to view the mission of God. When you make conversion that your end goal, crusades happen. Um, the Inquisition happens. Not that, that, that ugly history in Christendom happens. Uh, indulgences happen. We don't want that stuff. Love is the ethic that Jesus gives us. What does he say is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 says, owe no one anything except to what? Love them. Nothing else. All the commandments are summed up in that, Paul says. So love, love. An expression of our love is sharing Jesus. It's not conversion. It's not forcing people. It's just pointing them to Jesus and showing them who we are. Showing them Christ's love. Showing them God's love and that demonstration. And we love because he first loved us. So that's the mission of God. Uh, in, in a general umbrella sense, there's, again, there's books and books written on that. So uh, two parts here. One, mission of God, justification by faith. That's salvation. That's salvation part. That's God's part. That's not your part. Justification by faith is, is God's part. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Uh, eight, eight and nine, really, it's, it's, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. It's not of yourself, lest anyone should boast. It's not of works. It's by faith. So justification, we've been justified, we've been made right, we've been put in a right standing before God by faith or, or through faith, okay? But that's God's part. You didn't do anything for that. Here's our part, sharing that faith, okay? God's part, he justifies us by faith, the Bible says even the amount of faith that you have, God gave it to you. <laughs> um, so that's God's part. Our part is sharing that faith. This is Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. This is, this is Acts 1.8 here. It says, you've been given power. You receive that power. Guys, do not waste the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you to be a witness to God, for God, to others, to this world. Don't waste that power. Don't waste it. It's been stewarded to you to share your faith and to, to be part of the mission of God. Also part of that is us being the hands and feet of Jesus. Why we have the new common. It's why Missy mentioned the food bank earlier. It's why we do things in St. James Town. It's why we partner with organizations. It's why we collaborate with our city. It's why we work with the MPPs and the MPs and, and on and on and on. Because we're trying to be salt and light as well to reconcile all things to God in Christ Jesus. And the last thing, guys, is, is fulfillment. Some people would say second coming here, although I'd say that's a part of it. I'd say just fulfillment. This is, this is 9 through 11. It's Jesus is coming back. It's, the disciples are standing. They, they said, they're just standing there looking up, and the angels appear, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Why are you guys just standing there? And why are you just looking up into heaven? They say, he's going to come back the same way. And then the next verse in verse 12 says, well, they went. They returned to Jerusalem. They went and did their thing. So the second coming, guys, we know is happening. That's the fulfillment. Jesus is coming back to rescue us, to, to make things right. That's all we need to know about eschatology. When, how, we don't need to get into those arguments. Uh, that's, we don't need to speculate. Um, although people think that's fun, we can have fun with that. But when it becomes divisive, yeah, that's... that's um, uh, yeah, we need to put that down. Uh, so we know Jesus is coming back, but there's a completion, right? He says, I'm going to be with you in, in Matthew 28 to the end of the age. That's the fulfillment part of it. He sends us his spirit, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to make all things new. He's going to restore. He's going to recreate this world. He's going to restore it to what it should have been and what it was. There's an Edenic Eden, Garden of Eden, an Edenic thread you can trace through the entire scriptures. And a, there's a book, there's bookends to that. And God is going to do that for us when Jesus returns. And so guys, 
that's why uh, this series is called Discover and Rise, is, is we, we want you to discover these things, but we want that to lead to you rising, to you moving. Don't just stay looking up in the, the sky waiting for Jesus to return, although we need to be vigilant and watchful. But that means we're people of action. Faith and works are paired together, James says. Without works, faith is dead. So let's pair those things together because right theology always leads to right practice. Right theology always leads to right practice. We always live it out. So that's core theology. That's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the umbrella. Scripture, Jesus, um, everything's in there, right? Mission of God, fulfillment, trinity. Those are core core theological doctrines that we want to major in, that we want to center ourselves around. Everything else, guys, like I said, second order, third order. Doesn't Doesn't mean they're not as important. It uh, doesn't mean we don't deal with them. We do, and they are important. What we believe about spiritual gifts is important. What we believe about baptism is important. But it doesn't divide us from other Christians. And it shouldn't do that. We can actually be in the family of God together uh, and in the household of God together uh, with people who believe differently on second and third order doctrines. But the core is what makes you a follower of Jesus. So... Yeah, let's, let's celebrate that together. Let's let our theology that's right lead to right practice and be the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are the word made flesh. Thank you that you are the radiance, the exact imprint of the nature of God, that you are the image of the invisible God, that you reign supreme over all things, that you are preeminent, that you're the firstborn from the dead, that you created all things, all things were created through you, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, and that came through servant leadership, that came through you humbling yourself, that came through you hearing the Father's voice and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we follow your example as the church, as individuals who make up the church. And we lay our lives down for you to be living sacrifices. That is our reasonable act of worship. That's the very least we can do. So we give ourselves to you today and pray that you would make us your masterpiece, that we would be on display for the world to see, and that we could say to other people, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And and don't imitate me when I don't. So Jesus, make us more like you today, we ask in your name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.